Michael Hawley has published over a dozen research articles in journals dedicated to the Whitechapel murders Jack the Ripper mystery, namely Ripperologist, Whitechapel Society Journal, Casebook Examiner, and The Dagger, and published online articles for numerous websites. He was honored to lecture at the Jack the Ripper conference in Baltimore, Maryland in April 2016 and Liverpool, England on September 23rd this year. Holly will be appearing on the Jack the Ripper episode of The Legend Hunter on the Travel Channel in its 2018 season and is the author of The Ripper's Haunts with the top book reviewer and author Paul Begg. He's also the author of The Watchmaker Revelations, a mystery thriller fiction trilogy with the first, The Ripper's Hellbroth, being published in 2017. Hawley holds a master's degree in science and secondary science education at State University of New York, College of Buffalo, and a bachelor's degree in geology and geophysics at Michigan State University. He's a commander and naval aviator in the U.S. Navy, retired, and is currently enjoying a career as a secondary earth science and chemistry teacher. He resides with his wife and six children in Greater Buffalo, New York. It's great to have you with us at 1001 Heroes Podcast, and I think today we're going to solve the mystery of who Jack the Ripper really was. What's been keeping you busy lately, number one, and number two, we would love to hear your opinions and story on Jack the Ripper. Well, it's great to be part of this. The, uh, as you just made a comment about, two weeks ago I was in Liverpool, England at the Jack the Ripper conference doing a lecture on the recent discoveries that uh, we made on uh, Ripper suspect Francis Humbley in January 2017, and that uh, it was really enjoyable because it kind of shocked a few people there. But uh, previous to that, last year was the Baltimore lecture, and that's when my book, The Ripper's Haunts, came out, and that was a, a bunch of new discoveries in the last two years. And so then the, my next book, which is going to be published by the time my, uh, the, the Legend Hunter episode comes on next, uh, next March, it's called, uh, the book is called Jack the Ripper Suspects, Dr. Francis Tumblebee. And so this just yesterday, or just a couple days ago, I flew into Dublin, Ireland, and was interviewed for, for about three hours on this particular uh, suspect, but it's a, a Jack Ripper episode. The Legend Hunter is a series that's going to begin in March 2018, and uh, the, the host, Dan Spain, what they're doing is they're going all around the world finding legends. They were just in the Congo, they were in Sumatra, now they're in Ireland looking for some, mis- uh, some uh, royal jewels, so it's really interesting, and, uh, and Dan is so charismatic, so it was a very interesting conversation. But he had heard about the discoveries we had, so he wanted to ask a lot of questions, and so it went really well. What we'd love to know is what you've got on Tumblety. You've spent years researching Francis Tumblety and, and his psychological profile. You guys have laid it out pretty clearly in terms that you believe uh, that there's a high likelihood that he was Jack the Ripper. So we'd love to have you tell us that story uh, of Tumblety uh, and taking us right along the road with him uh, right through London. Okay, great. The, uh, the first thing is, as a researcher, I will never say 100% case closed because once you say case closed, you've now, your, your mind is just locked into one particular suspect. And now it's very difficult to get out of that cherry-picking process, uh, the, 
uh, cognitive dissonance. In this case, the first thing I talked about is when we had two different experts looked at the records of the Ripper victims, a forensic pathologist, uh, Dr. William Eckert, and uh, a forensic scientist criminal profiler, Dr. Brent Turvey, when they looked at the crime scenes and the, the, the victims or the records of them, they did not see uh, a sadistic or a sadosexual serial killing. What they saw was a non-sadistic uh, offender, meaning the mutilations were after death. So it was not a sadistic kind of killing. They killed, and then, then they were they eviscerated in that case. And also what they saw, they did not see a sexual offense because the attack was not in, let's say, the vagina. It, uh, the vagina. it was more attacking the womb, what makes a woman uh, different than a man. So what they were, what both of them see, and this was independent of both, was they saw a, uh, a behavior of anger retaliatory, and then they also saw reassurance-oriented. Anger retaliatory would be uh, one example of that. That would be would be hatred of women. But the reassurance-oriented is interesting because that uh, elements of that would be such as collecting trophies and putting, uh, let's say, your victims on display, and and also humiliating the victims sexually or a, a, like a sexuality kind of thing, and trying to instill fear into the public. So. Both of those saw that. And so when we looked at Francis Tumblebee, we see a lot of things. One is the very first time that we got word of Francis Tumblebee was Stuart Evans in uh, 1992 received a private letter or a letter that was written in 1913 as a private letter from the chief inspector of the special branch in Scotland Yard. And at that time, what that chief inspector was doing, he was, it was a private letter to a famous journalist at the time uh, named, named Sims. And what he said was that this was the first time that someone, a Stuart Evans, had heard that uh, a, a, the suspect, Francis Tumblebee, was named. And here it is, Little Child said that he was a very likely one. Here Stuart Evans has been... From today, he's been researching the Jack Ripper murders for about 50 years now. And it was a shock to him back then, so it was like 30 years of research, to even hear his name. Not, not just a minor suspect, here's Chief Inspector Littlechild saying he's a very likely suspect. And so then Stuart Evans started researching for a couple of years and wrote his book and uh, discovered a lot of material. And so then after that, he stopped researching Francis Humble. Then others got involved with Francis Humble's uh, research but a lot to the negative. And so a lot of the books were written that he was likely not even a serious suspect. So when I got involved in around 2009, I actually saw the reverse. And it wasn't just because of my looking at the same evidence. Well, I did look at the same evidence, and I really saw Stuart Evans's research is more credible. So, but then I started working, researching, discovering a lot of things. I have a, a background in research, and so I just kind of started focusing on that discovered more and more things, and all of it, every bit of it, pointed towards not only that Scotland Yard considered Francis Tubbley one of the key suspects at the peak of the murders, that he could very well be Jack the Ripper, especially the recent discoveries that we've had this year. And uh, reports show that he was a, uh, when he was here, he was a loner, and, uh, but when he got here, 
within three years, age 20, he started working for an alternative doctor. This, uh, this was a French cures kind of doctor. Lispinard was the nickname of the guy, and his name was Reynolds. But he was working in his office. And uh, so one of the things about the 1850 census showed that Francis Tumbley was literate. So he could read all this material, and he was an office boy. But soon after that, he started working for an Indian herb doctor, R.J. Lyons, that was uh, in Rochester for a few years. And uh, the reports, a nephew who was only four years his junior that lived in Rochester with him said that he started leaving Rochester at the age of 20, about the age of 20. And what he was doing was he was, he was basically traveling, maybe, maybe not with the doctors, but he would be going to different cities and uh, helping advertise them. But by, that was in 1850, but then by 1856, Francis Tumbley was on his own uh, claiming to be a full-fledged Indian herb doctor in Canada, London, Canada. And uh, so within three years, he was in, in Toronto. He made, in today's value, a million dollars. He was just, he was a brilliant man. He, uh, he was very good at uh, getting advertising. And one of the things, the, uh, the, he would do the botanical medicines, the, and they called it Indian herb doctor, but there were a couple of botanical medicines. But at, the, at that time, allopathic medicine, which was the medicine with chemistry that the, uh, the medical association recommended and the surgeons would use that was kind of nasty at the time because they were still using mercury mm-hmm. and they were still they were still bloodletting so it hurt a lot so there was and a lot of there's a lot of mistrust among the public uh, toward the the doctor profession so they would turn that, they would turn to his advertising for patent medicines that were from safe herbs uh, that, that were that were gained from local Indian tribes or whatever knowledge they had right Right, and he would, and he, they, he, and among others too. But he would claim they would claim that uh, they could cure all. And uh, but one of the things it did was it made you feel good initially. And he would actually get a lot of great uh, testimonials. And that's he would he would publish these testimonials that he was he was a uh, par excellence. Not he was not really pushing Indian herb doctor medicines. He was pushing himself as the best. Indian herb doctor ever. So when he did that, he was making money hand and fist, but at the same time, he was getting himself into trouble for a couple reasons. One is that he claimed he was a medical doctor. He would say MD all the time. And so in Canada, the medical association, the doctors uh, successfully kind of booted him out. So he would go into a city and then he would get kicked out basically, but he would travel and go, he went through Canada all the way to the East Coast. And at the time, same time, we have record of him treating his uh, certain women, widows and maids, not all women, but widows and maids, poorly. Then he went to the East Coast, to St. John, uh, Canada, well, it wasn't Canada at the time, but uh, the uh, Newfoundland area of St. John, that uh, he, one of his patients died. So they were going to charge him with manslaughter. Before the court case went on, he sneaked out of the country and came to Boston. And then, uh, and then he started doing the same business throughout the United States, still making money hand and fist. In 1861, when the the Civil War began, in July 18th, uh, the Battle of Bull Run, the first Battle of Bull Run, we see Tumblebee in Washington D.C. He called it himself in his autobiography as two-year soldier in D.C. What he did was 
is he tried to convince the general, General McClellan at the time, that he was a qualified surgeon and he wanted to get on his staff. Now, he really didn't want to get on his staff, but what happens is because he really did not have a medical diploma, if the U.S. Army has hired you as a surgeon, you've just bypassed a medical diploma. You are now an official surgeon, basically. He really wanted that, and so in the later years, he lied and claimed he was. But, uh, but the general saw through him. But what he did was, back at that time, surgeons, to be uh, the, the credible surgeons, all had anatomical museums to show uh, that they created these anatomical models. And then so what he did was, it was reported by a man named Colonel Dunham that Tumbley invited officers, which would be the eyes and ears of the general, to have an illustrated lecture and within that illustrated lecture, meaning he was talking about his uh, surgical skills, he presented some of his anatomical specimens, and Colonel Dunham said his favorite was his collection of uterus specimens. And so some people had argued that that was the only person that said this, and we can't trust Colonel Dunham because he's got a shady path. But what I found out was just a month before he had that illustrated lecture or claim to, he was in New York City, and the rep there was a New York reporter complaining about his office because he had pictures of anatomical specimens outside his office. 1880-1881, there is an absolute shift in his agenda. Prior to that, it was money-making. And part of that money-making was being in the limelight, trying to advertise, and wearing, you know, kind of a, being eccentric in his clothing, wearing five different suits of, you know, in one day. But at 1880, 1881, that stopped. And so we have no record of advertising. Uh, he did, he, didn't, he no longer had any offices in the, the United States or North America, but he continued to have offices in, in England. And, and then there's record of him to have an office in London. He never advertised. And so what, in January of 1888, the year of the murders, he talked to a, a Toronto Globe reporter and he told that reporter that he was in constant threat of sudden death because of kidney and heart disease. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And, and so what you see now with these new, uh, the 700 pages of documents that he said that to uh, multiple people throughout the 1880s and 1890s that he could die any moment or he might live another 10 years but he could, he could drop any moment. So you could see that he shifted into quality of life. And now he would visit cities that improved his health, as, such as hot springs. So he really was into the uh, hydrotherapy springs, Saratoga Springs in Northern in New York. So he would try to go into these, uh, these areas for his health. And so, but he absolutely blames women for the curse of the land. And uh, he did that. We have record of him doing that in Liverpool in the 1870s. And he continued to do that. And so here's a man that he didn't hate all women. 
he hated women basically who could decoy young men away from their intended lovers and that would be men now 1888 by the way the murders let's say uh, october or september were the, was a double event then we have mary kelly so here's when you look to rip the victims the three organs that were taken was the kidney the heart and uterus twice that he, and so Tony is the only one connected to those three organs. Mm-hmm. So, so it's uh, pretty pretty interesting. Now, you had mentioned earlier that they had a file on him at Special Branch. Now, Special Branch, if I'm understanding correctly, was set up by Scotland Yard really to monitor Irish national terrorist action. Is that correct? And, right. And, this, and the following question is, do you have anything that links Tumblety? They must have had it. But do you know what they had on Tumblety that linked him to the Irish National Terrorist uh, Organization? Uh, a couple things. One is, I don't believe that, that that large dossier was in Special Branch. I believe it was in CID. Okay. So the reason why uh, many people think that Special Branch is because uh, Chief Inspector Littlechild was the one that made the comment. So uh, if I could read that spot that he talks about that. Here's Littlechild talking privately to uh, a person saying, I never heard of a Dr. D in connection with the Whitechapel murders. Dr. D, by the way, is Druitt, because mm-hmm. Sims, who was a journalist, believed Druitt was the murderer, thanks to McNaughton. But it said, but amongst the suspects, so here it is, amongst the suspects, here's Chief Inspector Littlechild, who was not directly involved with the Ripper murders, but indirectly he was. Amongst the suspects mean... Tumbley was already a suspect when he got involved. He was a suspect by the uh, investigative division, CID. And, and to my mind, a very likely one was a Dr. T. Sounds like T. He says he was an American quack named Tumbley and was at the time a frequent visitor to London and on these occasions constantly brought under notice of police, there being a large dossier concerning him at Scotland Yard. So what happens is, as he continues, he talks about Tumbley, and he says that although a psychopathiosexualist subject, meaning gay, who is not known as a sadist, then it says, which the murderer unquestionably was. That was part of Special Branch, which means Special Branch, as you said, they focused on the Irish nationalist issue, especially the violent branch of that, like the Thanian. So they could care less about him having a hatred of women. But Tumbley was already, 1873, Tumbley was in front of the judge, got arrested in London because of his uh, little uh, sexual assault relationship with a young man named Lyons. That would not have been special branch. That would have been mm-hmm. CID. Right. So he already, he already had a file in CID. So then it says Tumbley was arrested at the time of the murders in connection with the unnatural offenses and charged at Marlborough Street, remanded on bail, jumped his bail and got away to Boulogne. Now, the point there is, he was exactly right. But then it says here, he shortly left Boulogne, which he did because he went to Havre, because Boulogne is how you get across. So usually he left England on the west coast, Liverpool, when he went to New York. He sneaked the other way, got to Folkestone Harbor, and crossed the channel to Boulogne, which was how you did that with a ferry. And so then you'd take a train to Havre, France, and then he took took the ship on on November 24th, but it says, it was believed he committed suicide, but certain it is that from this time the Ripper murders came to an end. So when he says that certain it is that the, from this time the Ripper murders came to an end, 
he's trying to tell Sim that this is one of the reasons why he's convinced that Tumbley should be taken seriously. But Little Child, although he was completely accurate, he was completely wrong when it says it was believed he committed suicide. Chief Inspector Little Child's boss the next year was McNaughton, who was convinced that it was the Druid who committed suicide. Mm -hmm. So you can see why Little Child gets mixed up. Yeah. If Francis Tum if Francis Tumbledee was a serious uh, Fanian suspect, the dynamiters in New York uh, were a huge thing. Uh, Little Child had direct knowledge of what was going on in, in New York because Chief Inspector Burns of New York City said in 1884 that he was in constant communication with Scotland Yard because of this stuff. And so Little Child would have known exactly where Tumbley was afterwards because if he was taken seriously as a, a Fanian, he would have known what was going on with Tumbley in 1888, 1889. But look at it. He, in this private letter, it says it doesn't say that. So my point would be is, yes, he was he was definitely taken under consideration because of the Irish nationalist issue because he traveled back and forth and he was a rich Irish American. I'm hoping you can fill in a blank for me. One of the one of the subjects I didn't cover in our our two episode series on Jack the Ripper was the uh, 22 Batty Street Lodger. Okay. Could you explain? what that part of the mystery was and why you think it was Tumblety. Well, that, uh, that came from Stuart Evans when uh, what happened was that right after the double, the double event murders, Burner Street was where Elizabeth Stride uh, was murdered. So the double event. And so, uh, so Batty Street is pretty much right next to Burner Street. And so what happened was there was a... Uh, Right that evening after the double event, at 2 in the morning, uh, a tenant came into, uh, a I think it was 19 Betty Street, that uh, came in, and then that next morning, uh, they, the, the lady heard that uh, him come in at 2 in the morning. So then the next morning, the man had wrapped clothes and said, could you wash these and I'll get these later. And so she noticed that the cuffs had blood splattered all over them. And so that was so threatening enough, especially when she they, she got word that you know these here's Jack Ripper kind of attacking again or these murders, that the police got involved real quickly, and so apparently then it got it gets cloudy because we have different reports, and uh, there is uh, in the case we have conflict as I said conflicting reports. One of the reasons I believe is that Scotland Yard did and they they were. Re told not to talk to the press and so in this case a neighbor made a comment that oh, oh so the woman would stop talking so you could see that scout and yard got a hold of the woman to say you're you know don't talk to the press so but a neighbor did and made comments that she said something to the effect about uh this foreigner uh this uh, foreigner uh, that the the person was the lodger was so then what happened was in probably it's in the in the early uh, between 1900 and 1910 probably uh, bef uh it was probably maybe 1908 1907 what happened was this very same journalist that little child wrote a letter to sims made a uh, wrote an article about some recent the uh, recent events about uh, who possibly jack the ripper was because at the time 
Sims was quite convinced that it was Druitt, made some comments about Druitt, but he also made a comment that some stuff happened in the paper about Jack Ripper. This lady came up to him and said that he, she had Jack the Ripper staying at her place and made a comment that it was an American that had, had the, the blood on here and on the cups. And what she said was that she saw him again in London somewhere, this a doctor, American doctor, that's what she said. It was an American doctor. And so she was convinced that that person was him. And so I think what happened was is Sims contacted Scotland Yard and they investigated it. And, but what's interesting was that, what, 1888 to about 20 years later, this lady says that she's convinced she sees somebody. Important was that she said that she had Jack the Ripper staying at her place. So at the police, back in 1888 with the Battery Street Lodger, said that that was nothing, and she was convinced. Why then, 20 years later, she's so convinced that Jack the Ripper was really there? Mm -hmm. And so this right here, uh, the timing is quite interesting about that. And uh, so that right there, because of the American doctor connection, it's not that we're convinced that that was Francis Tumbley, but there it does show that there's a possibility. Now, there's, a, there's another American doctor connection, and that was the report uh, to the police that an American doctor apparently was asking, was it medical colleges or museum, uh, for uh, uteri, that he, was, that he was trying to buy them uh, in right. 1888, and that it was an American doctor from, they said, Philadelphia. Could you fill us in on that story? Oh, okay. It was, uh, Baxter actually was, he was the coroner that one after the Chapman murder, Baxter said that he got word that there was a, what do they call it, a pathological museum, uh, part of the uh, two different uh, medical schools. Supposedly an American doctor, American medical student approached them and asked for uh, uter a collection of uteruses for, I think, 20 pounds a piece or something to that effect. And so what Baxter was trying to say is not that that particular person was Jack the Ripper, but what if you read the reports, he was saying possibly what was happening was that the person that took that uterus from Chapman was looking for that, it was, and so it was, and maybe trying to sell that, you know, part of uh, part of the business of selling. So what happened was then, soon after that, there was a report that that particular doctor was identified. It was a gynecologist in Philadelphia that was there the year before, and he was not a medical student. He was a, uh, it was a, a you know, a well-established older gentleman looking for some specimens. And so the interesting thing about that was that here, again, Sims makes a comment decades later, a couple decades later, that there were still people in Scotland Yard that are convinced that Jack the Ripper was looking for uterus specimens in the almost living body, meaning he mm. just got killed. So why, if it was true that they were convinced, if Scotland Yard was convinced that Philadelphia gynecologist was the person that was trying to get those uterus specimens, why then here Sims, who had connections with Scotland Yard, 15 years later, makes a comment that people in Scotland Yard are still convinced about that story? Wouldn't it, to me, if it was absolutely that gynecologist, that's kind of, uh, you know, a slam dunk. It was not anyone. But, so to me, that's why we can see that there's still more to that story. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There was a theory back then that Scott Yard actually investigated that Jack the Ripper was looking for the elixir of life, and he was mm-hmm. a mixing herbs with the fluids of the uterus where life begins and trying to make this elixir. So here we know Francis Dumbledore was knew that allopathic medicine wasn't working for him, knew that his botanical medicine wasn't working for him, and it was at a time that actually people were looking for the elixir life science. Even in 1888 to 1889, a French doctor named Brown Sicard was saying that, claiming that he had powdered pig testicles that when he ingested those, he, he felt just tremendous vigor. So there was a scientific uh, search for an elixir of health, elixir of life at the time. So it wasn't just kind of like one of those uh, bizarre things that was happening. And incidentally, at the same time the Ripper murders were occurring in the wealthy west end of uh, London and the Lyceum Theater, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was being played. And the reporter said that the Scotland Yard was saying it was a Jekyll Hyde kind of theory because here it is, this man's looking for this elixir, and that's what happens with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Lo and behold, in that Lyceum Theater at the time, we have Bram Stoker, author of Dracula, is the business manager. His best friend was Sir Henry Hall Kane, who was the boyfriend years earlier to Francis Dumbledore. Right. And then... In Lyceum Theater, the people that worked there, they were members of this Masonic group called the Order of the Golden Dawn, and their primary goal was look for the elixir of life. So it's kind of all these really kind of close correlations with this stuff. But yeah, it's it's all tied in. I I did a episode on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and oh. uh, that was that book that she wrote in 1818 was inspired by a legend that she had heard of as as she traveled up through Germany and passed a castle called the Frankenstein Castle, and that was uh, inhabited by a mad doctor who was seeking guess what the elixir of life. Uh, so this is 1818. So yeah. this this uh, theory kept kept uh, doctors' minds busy. I know throughout the 19th century. And no, well, da- and, fact, and no doubt caused a lot of havoc. Well, as a matter of fact, the uh, the eight uh, what Francis Dumbley did was uh, in uh, uh, let's see, it was December uh, so uh, December second, eighteen eighty eight. He arrived in New York, and in January thirty first, eighteen eighty nine, he gave a, uh, a uh, an interview to a New York World reporter, admitting that he was in the Rip, uh, you know, in the Whitechapel district during the murders. He would say, he said. And that he blamed the the British police for arresting him because they were basically idiots. Well, within two weeks of that interview, he had his 1889 autobiography published, which was basically his 1872 autobiography. But there was a chapter that he was countering the the, the Ripper fiasco, and he did not want to connect. He he never says London. He he and he talks about his name being 
spread all over the papers. And instead of blaming the British press, he blames the New York papers. And why he does that is because he doesn't want any connection to London. But he's blaming them. So within the 1866, 1872, and 1888, 1889 autobiography, he talks about somewhere out there is this, in the botanical world, there is this elixir of health that can cure all that he's in the search for. So then, lo and behold, in the 1893 uh, autobiography, he makes a comment that there is not a uh, the elixir of life out there. So it's like he gave up. And around 1893 is when he, you could see that his body, he just gave up on this, and he just kind of lived as a homeless person on the outskirts. But how interesting that hmm. the 1890, he, he purposely made a comment about the uh, no... Uh, nothing like that in the 1893 autobiography. So more coincidence. <laughs> All right. Using using circumstantial evidence, this is your last chance to talk to the jury. <laughs> and I want you to okay. bring up the five five reasons you think are the top reasons why they should convict Tumulty okay. for the Ripper murders. Well, well, one of the things is, is uh, as I said, I'm a researcher of Tumulty first, and Although I'm, I have high suspicions, I will never say 100% just because I want to try to maintain uh, as least bias as I can, although, you know, humans are naturally biased. But let me uh, kind of make a couple comments. First of all, there, he is the only suspect that three Scotland Yard officials considered him a suspect even after the Kelly murders. We have Assistant Commissioner Anderson himself contacting U.S. Chiefs of Police November 20th around November 20th, asking for all information on Francis Tumbley, and it's basically, when you look at the Brooklyn, when he talked to the Brooklyn Police Chief, Chief of Police, he talks about, in reference to the Ripper murders. This is January 20th. So then we have, of course, Chief Inspector Littlechild, later on saying he's a very likely suspect, and this is after the uh, Kelly murder. And then the last one is Inspector Andrews, which a different uh, inspector, who became a chief inspector, Walter Dew, made a comment that the three first-class inspectors involved with the Jack Ripper murders at the time was Inspector Moore, Inspector Aberline, and Inspector Andrews. So nobody knew that at the time, I mean, besides this, but here's Inspector Andrews, that he went to Canada coincidentally around the same time in early December, and so there was some possible suggestion that he may have gone there to to kind of hunt stuff down for the latest suspect they had was Francis Tumbley. So what happened was, I'm not going to argue that case, but what I'm going to what I'm going to say is, when he was in Toronto, there was a Toronto reporter asked him about Francis Tumbley, and so here's Inspector Andrews saying, uh, "Oh, he asked if you knew Francis, the Ripper suspect Francis Tumbley," and uh, Andrew said, "Of course I do." Now he did say he's not he's not the murderer. But of course he said that because here's Scotland Yard, kind of embarrassed that Francis Tumbley sneaked out of the country. Of course he's going to say that. But what he said was, was but, the, uh, but all the same, we still want to interview him. How strange that is, that they still want to interview him. And uh, well, one of the things was he was actually arrested in November, uh, November 7th, when, he, uh, when you look at the court calendar records, he was, arrest, he was placed in the custody, not for the Ripper murders, at that time, but he was placed in custody, custody for the gross indecency. What happened was he was arrested before that uh, 
uh, on suspicion of the Whitechapel crimes. And in his pocket were four, uh, a number of letters from young men. So nobody saw the murders, by the way. And so, so there was no way that we're gonna, they were going to prosecute anybody for the murders unless they could get a confession, and Tumbley wasn't going to do that. So what they did was is they thought, well, if he, you know, they were convinced that here's, a, here's an American doctor, and they were suspicious about American doctors thanks to the Dear Boss letter, because there was Americanisms in that Dear Boss letter, and that he was wearing, wearing an American slouch hat. That, that was part of one of the possible uh, eyewitness accounts of an American slouch hat. And so when he was arrested, they said, well, if we, we could put him away for a couple of years for gross indecency because we have him because of these art letters, and so if the murder stopped, then it looks like we might have our man kind of thing. That was their idea. But what happened was is when they arrested him a couple of days before Kelly murder, he posted bail, and even though there's no direct evidence to show that, uh, that when, he, when you get arrested, you, when you go in front of the magistrate, go into what they call a remand hearing, so to see if you stay in jail, in prison, Holloway Prison, until your committal hearing, which was November 14th, the judge or the magistrate gave him bail. So if you gave him bail on the committal hearing, you probably gave him bail on the remand hearing. And so what happened was is he posted bail by November 16th. Now what happened was is there was a grand jury. Now the court, the Central Criminal Court case was going to be November 20th in front of the judge. November 19th was the grand jury case where now uh, our jury of peers is listening to the case. What happened was they gave it a true bill, meaning there was enough evidence to prosecute, at least to take it up to the judge. So Tumbley's lawyer knew right then that he was going to jail. I mean, they were convinced enough about that. So what happens? On November 20th, Tumbley's, Tumbley's attorney successfully postponed that court case to December 10th. So it was now December 10th, and at the same day, Tumbley takes about 300, over 300 pounds of cash from his New York bank, and likely to help escape. And what happened is by November, November 23rd, we see, uh, November 24th, he's on the ship on, uh, in Havre. So November 23rd, he was in Boulogne. So within, between November 20th and November 23rd is when he escaped. And then, but what's interesting was, is Little Child himself said that, that he was seen in Boulogne basically on November 23rd. Well, what happens is that, that gross indecency case was legally postponed until December 10th. And so on December 10th, when he was a no-show, that's when there was a warrant out for his arrest. Why would Scotland Yard, if they were only concerned with Tumblebee, with because of the uh, gross indecency case, why would they know that he was in France on November 23rd? Because he was, just like the reports were saying back then, he was arrested, and their, their suspicion was his, his, because he might be Jack Ripper, and they were just trying to hold him because of the gross indecency. So that's what was going on. And so we have three Scotland Yard officials making reference to that. And then the other thing is that he does match the, uh, what these experts talk about, the anger retaliatory, and also reassurance-oriented. And now what I already talked about is if you look at the organs taken, from, let's say the canonical five, let's assume that uh, Mary Kelly was. And by the way, there's some art, there's some, uh, uh, if, I don't know who discussed it, but I have some conversation about Mary Kelly uh, that I don't care, I don't mind if people don't think so, but there's actually a good reason why they, she was. Because there's a difference between MO and uh, offender signature. And so the MO is clear with the four, first four, first couple, but the offender signature you see it quite a bit in Mary Kelly with uh, reassurance-oriented. 
But it doesn't matter because uh, uh, regardless, uh, in this case, but we have the uh, the uterus, the kidney, and the heart, and that's the only suspect connected to those. But then there was this, there's only one inanimate object taken from these victims. Uh, regardless if we're going to talk about Kelly or not, but the other victims, there's only one inanimate object. And those, that was the wedding ring and the keeper ring of Annie Chapman. And so one of the things about Francis Tumbley was when he would get arrested for uh, his sodomy and indecent assault with young men, uh, and he would, he would show in his pocket he had a whole bunch of expensive jewelry, and then he had, he had cash in the other. He, always, he never mixed the two. He'd have to have cash on one side and, and jewelry in the other, and he would show that so that uh, the, the police would treat him more like an upper, higher status person, so, uh, and that's why he would do that. And then, so we have record a couple times of what he had in his pockets. And so it was really just basically expensive diamonds. So when they itemized the list of uh, jewelry on his, after his death, there was these imitation set rings, which could clearly have been that the keeper ring and the uh, wedding ring. So it was kind of a surprise that Tumbley would have these cheap rings in his pocket which kind of conflicts with the purpose of why he had those in the first place, and so well, and they were never reported before. So they could very well bend those rings. But more importantly is that if you look at all those Ripper victims, nobody knows why Jack the Ripper took those rings, and, and if it was because of a, let's say, a trophy thing, why did he not take trophies from anybody else? Well, if Francis Tumbley was Jack the Ripper, there's an absolute reason why he took those, because... Francis Tumbley hated male and female union. He hated heterosexuality. He blamed the women for this. And so that was the, if you look at any object on these women, that was the only thing that was a symbol of male and female union right there. And the, the last one is, I think is probably the most dramatic, is that a young man named Richard Norris, he uh, was, interviewed in 1905 like in, uh, there were 47 different interviews and uh, or uh, testimonies sworn testimonies and depositions for the court case for Tumbley's money because uh, two-thirds of the relatives of Tumbley never got a dime from Tumbley in the 1903 will so they sued they tried to claim that Francis Tumbley was not of sound mind and body in 1903 therefore his will is now void therefore the family members get equal amounts that's what they were trying to do well, the attorney and the judge really could care less about his life except those last two years. So those, those interviews those, uh, was focused on between 1900 and 1903. But they also had lots of interviews about people that knew him since 1880, 1881, and they wanted to show a pattern of behavior. They knew that he was very eccentric, but they wanted to see what happened, what changed in the last two years. If they could prove that his personality changed completely or something weird, then he was senile, and that's what they were trying to do. It didn't work, but it showed that he was eccentric all the way. But young Norris admitted in 1881 that Tumbley, uh, like he always did so many times, he picked young Norris up. Norris was 19 at the time, 1881, and Norris asked, uh, uh, Tumbley uh, saw him at the St. Charles Theater in, in New Orleans and, and asked him if he could write a letter for him. So he, brought him up, uh, so he said yes and brought him up to the room. So Norris is explaining what happened. In 1881, Tumbley was there for a couple months. First, he was in the St. Charles Hotel, 
And so in there, I want to kind of read what Norris said. He said uh, he saw a large tray, a trunk, tumbled ahead a large trunk, and he said, then there was this sort of tray in the trunk, and there were all sorts of large knives in there, surgical instruments. And so what he's talking about, Tumbledy was showing him his collection of surgical knives. Now, this is 1881. This is the 1880s. So then he goes, uh, so what happened was uh, Norris was uh, smoking a cigarette at the time. And we knew that Tumbledy was a uh, big cigar smoker. So he said, uh, uh, so uh, Norris says, there were large knives in the trunk. Then he came over to me and felt my pulse and felt my legs. He says, I was smoking a cigarette at the time. And he said, throw that away, and he handed me a cigar saying it was bad to smoke cigarettes. He said, the trouble with young men are those cigarettes and those confounded streetwalkers. He said, if he had his way, they would all be disemboweled. This was 1881. Now, the interview was 1905. So some question is, well, is the guy telling the truth? Well, this person... Richard Norris was the telegraph operator for the chief of police for New Orleans for decades. And as a telegraph operator, you're handling classified information. And he and his brother, by the way, had uh, awards. They were well-respected in the New Orleans Police Department. And this is 1881, 1894, 95. Uh, now, here's Norris. Uh, has to, what happened was is then Tumbley molested Norris. A bit. So he talked about Tumbley being a hermaphrodite and all that kind of business and having this habit of killing women, he'd say. But he said that from 1881, every year, uh, and during this is Mardi Gras season, during Mardi Gras season, which was January to March, it varied, but uh, in New Orleans, he met up with Tumbley for 20 years. Now, that's till 1901, 1902. 1889 or 1885, Norris got married and he has kids by the time. So here's a man that has to admit that. Um, he talks about later on how he admitted that he would take money for, you know, male prostitution, basically. And so and that's what he knew that Tumbley, you know, had the liking for him. So he says, I don't do that thing unless I get money. So he's admitting that he's doing that with Tumbley and that Tumbley had the hots for him. And so he is now working and uh, working in the police department, having a wife and kid, having to admit that he was doing this. So this wasn't something that we just kind of, like, lie about, in a way. So the intriguing thing is this is the very first time we have any of the suspects are making a very ripple-like comment. Now, one suggestion was that, uh, that when you read this, that Norris was trying to say that this event occurred just after the murders in 1889. Well, um, later on, the attorney asked, when did these events happen? And he said 1881, or he said 1880 or 1881, but we know that Tumbledy was in, in Europe in 1880 and during the Mardi Gras season, so it couldn't have been that, so it was 1881. But this rate, even if, let's say that was true, you're seeing uh, that trunk is a travel trunk. Tumbledy had surgical knives from 1881 to 1889. He's traveling with them, and half the, and, and everybody, you know, the reports show that half the year throughout the 1880s, he was in London. So, with that trunk. So, how intriguing is that? Yeah, so, that puts him there with the weapons, no doubt about well, it. And, and here's the, the interesting thing was, is when I wrote The Ripper's Haunts, we didn't know about this. And then uh, when 
you know, we had Paul Begg, who's the, the top book reviewer. He's got dozens of books. He, when he had read my book, he said that, you know, we have to take Francis Tumbley seriously now. He this guy, you know, Paul Begg is a serious reviewer. If you've ever seen any of his book reviews, he's straightforward. I mean, if the facts don't fit, he lets you know. Mm-hmm. So it was because it's laden with facts. And then lo and behold, this comes up. And so it's like, to be honest, what happened was, is when I found out that uh, was that Francis Tumbley was buried an hour and a half away from my house, that's why I wanted to first focus on this. This was kind of a, you know, like, who's Jack the Ripper kind of stuff, CSI stuff. Well, I was going to focus on Tumbley first. When I'm done with him, I was going to go to Druid. I was kind of curious about Druid. Then I was going to be curious about, you know, just kind of go through the suspects and see what I could find because I just love research. I just keep on finding more and more stuff on this guy. So, uh, so basically, we're not done. <laughs> well, that's it's ongoing. I do understand that. It's been fantastic having you on with us. You've been a great guest. Um, I'd like you to just quickly recap your Travel Channel experience and when that's going to be airing. And then after you've done that, please tell us when your new book is coming out, what the title is, and uh, give us a brief on that. And then how people can, how our fans can get in touch with you. Oh, and by the way, there's a question you asked me I, for your fans, too. They can help out. Francis Tumbley, uh, he was in basically almost every city in the United States getting in trouble. So if you want to go into any of the archives and find anything arrested, uh, there, there you could find something on Francis Tumbley, by the way. But, ah, great. How do, you, so, how do you access the archives in your city? What's the best way to get in those old newspaper articles? How do you do it? Uh, I think uh, you would probably go to either a library or it just depends. Sometimes you have to go to uh, local historical organizations there, and then they can actually really direct you in the right spot. Name, also, name some cities both in the U.S. and in uh, Central America and in Europe where uh, people could look. Okay, well, that was the other surprise that he, he visited Mexico. And then uh, he, he likely traveled to Mexico. He, you know, he loved trains, but there, the, in the, Mexico wasn't, uh, didn't have too many, uh, you know, access that well. So, but from, uh, from New Orleans, you could take a ship to the harbor, uh, local, some of the uh, local the cities on the coastline. And a couple of them actually were notorious for homosexual activity. So you can see why Tumbley would like to go there. And later on in life, he would frequent Hot Springs, uh, Arkansas. He would frequent, I mean, Chicago, by the way. If anybody's in Chicago, you better look up there because there's some stuff. He hated he hated Chicagoans for a reason because he got in trouble. Something happened and he still found that. So if you want to go there, that'd be great. So then, uh, um, of course, New York City. And then he was in Pittsburgh. He was in uh, Philadelphia. He was in Washington, D.C. He went to uh, Alameda, California, or even San Francisco, he was in that area. He was in Baltimore, he had attorneys in Baltimore as well. And then Saratoga Springs, and then Toronto. He had, uh, there's a lot of information on Toronto. He, he was even in Toronto in the year of the murders. And that the problem was he couldn't go back to Toronto because Toronto or Canada was still kind of part of the, the British government. So if he went there, they could have easily extradited him for that misdemeanor offense which they could not do in the United States. So he stuck with the United States after the murders uh, occurred and then possibly went into Central America, maybe. I mean, there is hints that he went to Central America, 
but uh, definitely the, the young man said that. He said, come to me with to Mexico. But then, uh, so those are some of the cities, and then probably any of the other cities, because he, he really did frequent, he, he loved cities. You know, he was, he was a city person. He loved to frequent the slum. And what would some of his last names be if he were searching? If it wasn't Tumblety, what were some of the aliases that he used most often? Okay, one of the things is that that Tumblety, by the way, that name is a brand name, kind of like Trump is a brand name. So Francis J. Tumblety is what he used, and so at the end of, the, end of his life, that's what he did. But there's, there's evidence uh, that it wasn't Tumblety uh, spelled that way. Because on his uh, on in Rochester on his family gravestone it's Tumelty without a B it's Tum- with a U in there too, hmm. and his mother and father are on there his brother Lawrence is there all of it says rest in may he rest in peace and here's lo and behold do we have Francis Tumbley at the bottom here and it does not say may he rest in peace uh, he used the name Smith a couple times now he used here's another interesting thing he used Frank Townsend yeah. only twice. When he sneaked away out of England in 1888, he used Frank Townsend, and when on his deathbed, uh, or when he sneaked into uh, 1903 when he went in there. And by the way, the 1901 will that he had, will and testament, was considered still valid, I mean real, uh, and in there he bequeathed $1,000, which is $10,000 plus today, to the home for the fallen women. This is the type of women he hated worse, but he did it. Why? Because he was Catholic. And back then, he believed, like a lot of them at the time, which is not part of Catholic doctrine, but he believed this, that he wanted to grease the skids of heaven. So, <laughs> so that's the owner. He didn't feel guilty about anybody. Hmm. So, but, uh, yeah, so then uh, in uh, what happened was is the just a couple of days ago, uh, I was flown to Dublin, Ireland, and we spent uh, three hours interviewing pretty much what you're talking about. What happened was is the... Uh, the producers of the uh, Legend Hunter went to England and London, and they asked uh, if there was any new and surprising information. And so, so what they said was, "You got to talk to this guy named Holly." So then, next thing you know, I, the uh, producer was talking to me, and then, then I got a ticket to go there. And so uh, we talked about similar, uh, very similar stuff. Now, it, uh, and so I kind of presented that. Some kind of different kind of questions, but it was really enjoyable, and, and uh, I did enjoy enjoy shocking them with a few uh, things. So, but they they were so excited about that the, their little episode on this that it's a legend hunter. So they've gone to a bunch of different places. I was telling you earlier, and they they think that this episode is going to be the best one, so they're going to do it first. That's great. That so look for look for Travel Channel, the Legend Hunters. And it's 2018, so is that January 2018 or? or no, nope. they said that their episodes start in March. March, okay, March. 2018, and then. Uh, so our right, fans can look so, for you there. How about your upcoming book? What do you What do you have? Uh, right, and then uh, Sunbury Press is the uh, uh, the uh, the publishers, and then they will have this book. It's called Jack the Ripper Suspect, Doctor Francis Tumbley. I wanted it straightforward. This is what yep, it is. It's right on it. So if you're looking for that. That's what you're going to get, and it's got. I just scratched the surface. I'm telling you, there is an unbelievable amount of information. What I did is I go through his entire life to show uh, what type of person he was, what was going on when he was uh, when he was uh, kind of cruel to uh, widow or maid. Even in his autobiography, he talks about uh, bragging about 1866 autobiography about bragging about 
uh, being uh, threatening to widow or maid, and uh, so and surprisingly, that's taken out by 1872. How do our so people? Have, how do our fans contact you if they can find information? Oh, the, uh, probably the best way. I do have some Facebook pages, but I have uh, on my website, which is michaellhawley.com. So the a letter L in the middle for my middle initial is my website. I do have a uh, an email, a website email that I look at, you know, every so often. I have a, a Facebook uh, page called The Watchmaker. And uh, the reason why it's called The Watchmaker is because my fiction series is, uh, that's the protagonist, the hero. And the very first book is called The Ripper's Hellbuff, which is being republished like today. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be out. And it's basically a fictional version of The Ripper's Haunts, which was the nonfiction that I lectured last year. And fans, that's Michael Hawley. Hawley spelled H-A-W-L-E-Y. Michael, thank you so much. It's been great having you as a guest, and I want you to get in touch with me as soon as any good information turns up involving The Ripper case. I will. I will. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. It was, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we'll look forward to staying in touch. Great. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We enjoy your reviews at Apple iTunes Podcasts very much, and I would like to remind you that November is new subscriber month for us, so please help a friend subscribe to our show. Apple users or Android, it's all good, and we appreciate your loyalty as fans. Stay tuned in the weeks ahead for more exciting shows on a wide variety of topics, and check in with us at facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes, whenever you can. Coming up next week, American Ripper, the story of H.H. Monroe. And the entire show will feature an interview with Jeff Mudgett, great-great-grandson of H.H. Monroe, the American Ripper. And some reviews. Always interesting by Sventanavia, five stars. Great to hear parts of history uncovered. Great history by Candy Traveler 16 Five stars. This is a great podcast if you're a history buff. I was so excited to find the episode about the Culper spy ring. It was a great listen. This is a great podcast by T3000. Rating five stars. One of the best podcasts out there. A great look at history by Moishiro. Five stars. Thank you all so very, very, very much. And keep sending those reviews. We appreciate them. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.